Uh, we ready for war. Never back down. Give me some more. We came for the title. Killing the game. Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. All right, so this week on the podcast, we have Corey Ritter. Corey spent eight years in professional baseball as a strength conditioning coach and also as the sports science coordinator for the Los Angeles Dodgers. In this episode, we talk about doing assessments on players. Corey takes us through his own process for doing assessments, talk about training in-season versus off-season, and just why there's so many ways to go about working with players, training players. Um, Corey's one of the best that I've met in this business, and he, well, I wanted to have him on for a couple of reasons, but I would say probably the main reason is he has the experience of being a strength coach in professional baseball and then now in the private sector. And so he's, he's able to blend the two and he, he understands what's going to work and what's not going to work because he's you know been able to be in professional baseball as a, as a strength coach too. So if you enjoy the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, share it on social media. So here we go with Corey Ritter. This is the future. This is my time. I grind and shine. Put in the work and push the line. I'm holding my cramp. I never back down. All right, we now welcome onto the podcast Corey Ritter. Corey, thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah, happy to be here and uh longtime listener, so I'm very excited to be a part of this. I, I I appreciate that. And I know, you know, you've you have a lot of experience, I know, in baseball, and now you're you're in the private sector now. But you know, being in professional baseball for eight years and, you know, you were a strength conditioning coach, you were, you know, a sports science coordinator for the Dodgers. Like you've seen a lot of different things and worked with a lot of different departments. What, what's the biggest takeaway you have from being in professional baseball? And and I guess I'll follow up just to add a little bit more onto it is I think it, like, imagine if you never went into professional baseball and you were just a strength coach in the private sector the entire time, what would you have not have known? That's a great question. There's a lot. I, there's a few things that pop up in my mind first. Um, but I think like the general gist of it is that there are so many people in different locations working right now. And that, you know, I think you get fixated on that. You want to be the best player in your bubble. And, you know, you want to be better than those kids at your age and kind of in your little territory there. But there's so many kids across the globe that are practicing the game. And I think that it really broadened my view of, of just how good you need to be and, and how much work you need to put into it because of the fact that there are people in different situations in other countries who are uh, putting in just as much work, if not more. And so, you know, the level of work that I thought I was doing, I think it was a lot less than I probably, you know, looking back now, there's a lot more I should have been doing. And there's a lot of ways that I could have trained differently. Gotcha. So when you when you say that, do you are you talking about yourself or like players? I think that myself. Uh, you know, I, my first goal when I was younger, before I got into the training side, um, I wanted to be a professional baseball player, and you know, I, I worked at it. And the things that I thought that I was doing at the time, you know, you think that you're working very hard, and and you think that you know you're going towards a certain place. But to be honest with you, we just didn't have that information at that time, mm-hmm. and so now. Uh, I think seeing professional players and seeing how good they are. And again, like seeing players from different countries, different walks of life, it really put it into perspective to me that, you know, there was a lot of things that left to be desired. And I I guess those are some of the things that I talk about with players on a weekly basis here is that, you know, don't get fallen into the trap of uh, I'm doing enough Um, because sometimes there's other things that you could be working on, whether it's the nutrition side and, you know, obviously the strength conditioning side, 
but leave no stone unturned and, and make sure that you've, you know, really sought out all the answers that you possibly can, because, you know, some of these guys are just unbelievably good at it. And unless you exhaust all options, then, you know, you're going to be looking back and saying, I, I probably could have done more. I don't know if you saw this or not, because I know you were with the Braves as a strength and conditioning coach. And I don't know if you saw this video of Ronald Acuna <clears throat> basically saying like he doesn't bench, he doesn't do squats, he doesn't do any of that stuff. Um, how often do you run into that in um, in professional baseball? Like, would you, is there a good amount of players who are like that, or is he just a freak of nature and that's just kind of how he was brought up? And quite frankly, since because he's a freak, he doesn't really need to do a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, you know, when you see videos like that, I know some some kids will mention that to me and say, well, why are we do, we're working so hard on this stuff? And that's the thing is, I think, for one, I have seen uh, him train. I know that he does. Um, but as far as, like, bench press with the barbell, that might be the context that he was talking about. There are some things that he probably doesn't necessarily need to do because like you said I mean the first time I ever saw him was in the instructional league after uh, one of our seasons he was at our low a affiliate and when I went into instructs I saw Austin Riley Ronald Acuna some of these guys who are now you know incredibly good major league baseball players and to see him there's there was things that he had when he was 18 years old that a lot of players are going to work their rest of their careers to have and so yeah on the one hand you have guys who are kind of freaks in nature and and they're further ahead than some others are but I do think that later on in their careers if we check back on that same person that you probably would see that they they found that to in order to continue to play at that high level which I think you know post injury that he had I think that he's probably seen a different level of training now and I'm sure his routine is going to change as he gets older not speaking him personally but just different players who maybe feel like early on in their careers it's not necessarily for them I think that as they get deeper into the process, they start to to realize, hey, I'm I'm trying to stick around for 10 to 12 years here, so this might have something to do with it. Are there certain movements that you like for all your all your players you want them doing or certain exercises in the weight room that you think it doesn't matter who they are, like they need to be doing? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. I think that a good having a good framework for what you do we, we talked about this before we started that there's a lot of it depends. I think that the safest thing to talk about in terms of the structure that most teams do is they're going to be doing some form of a squat because that's one of the, you know, most in-depth research movement there is. Uh, we're going to do some form of hinging because, you know, that does allow players to understand how to load their hips a little bit better. So in every athletic position that you're going to see on the field, learning how to hinge at your hips is, you know, a big part of that. So having some type of loaded hinge would be good. An upper body push, uh, which would be, it could be a push up, and it also could be a, a dumbbell bench press, something of that nature. Uh, and then you got a horizontal pull, like a row. You, uh, when you get overhead, that's when things get a little bit different with different teams. Um, some people allow players to overhead press. Uh, but we will do a, an overhead pull. So that would be either a lap pull down, uh, chin up or a pull up if a player is able to just based on their assessments and, you know, what our medical staff agrees on and what we can all get behind. But for in, in general, we would have some form of squatting, uh, some form of hinging, an upper body push, an upper body pull. And then there would be some level of core work, uh, whether that's bridging or planking, and then if we wanted to get more in-depth with a player in terms of rotation, 
then we would probably include it there as well. But that's the general framework of just about every team that I've been with. Gotcha. It seems like it's, um, you explained it in a very, in a very simply right there, which is awesome. It seems like when I just read stuff online, I, it, it it's very complex very quickly. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if, if you see that as well, but it's just like, geez, like I thought it was just kind of what you just said, but maybe it's just everyone's getting into the, into the weeds or I don't really know, but um, I feel like this next question is a perfect question for you because you've been, you know, not just a strength conditioning coach, but you were the sports science coordinator for the, for the Dodgers as well. Mm-hmm. Where do you see some of the stuff like the, the bat speed training, things like that for, for hitters? I mean, do you think that's something that's beneficial that have you actually saw results or is it one of those things where it's, it's impossible to really know because they're always going to be lifting as well. And you don't know how many swings they took before they started. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on being that sports science coordinator. Cause I mean, you're working with so many different departments and I'm sure you learned a ton of stuff during that yep. time period. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's driveline has, has been, you know, getting more and more popular since I left that position. And so at the time, you know, weighted balls and, and weighted bats and different implements were being involved for sure. But it is ta- it is tough because of the fact that most players who are trying to increase their bat speed at the professional level are also going to be training as well. So it's it's hard to kind of isolate and say, unless a player just completely shut down, we did a control group and we did a, a testing group where they're only going to do the bat speed training. They're not going to do anything else. It would be tough to say, but I don't, I, I, I think the bat speed uh, programs that are in place. I think uh, anytime you get into plow balls, stuff like that, I think they obviously have their merits and they have their places because uh, they wouldn't have stuck around for as long as they have if they didn't. Um, I know that when we talked about weighted bats and underload bats, that a lot of the older coaches who had been around the game a long time would kind of speak up and say, you know, we've been doing this to, to some extent for a long time. Um, you know, when you're younger, you see somebody swinging a weighted bat on deck and you're trying to find out why. And I think that it just put more context to be, uh, behind it and it put more structure to how we're going to do this in a periodized way that will be an eight-week program, for example, that has a built-in progression. So I think if anything, just in the, in the you know, in the context of sports science, do I think it helps? Absolutely. But until someone just completely does a control group and a testing group, then it would be hard to find out, you know, how much they help versus the other. What are your thoughts on, and this is something that, you know, I, I think a lot of times you hear this amongst a lot of different sports and, you know, you, some of the older former players aren't big fans of it, which I, I definitely understand, but workload management, mm-hmm. what are, what's your thoughts on that? Workload management, especially on the NBA side, has gotten a, you know, there's a different connotation to it. It seems like when people hear workload management, they automatically assume that means that a player is going to sit. And um, uh, we had a really, uh, when I was with the Dodgers, we had a really smart uh, person in that field of research named Tim Gabbett, who came and spoke with us. And this stuck with me and it made it crystal clear for me. So um, my understanding of workload management was really improved by him. He said that with workload management, it is to make sure that you're able to play. And that's the thing. It's, it has nothing to do with a player not being able to perform. It is that we need to structure our day to make sure that when we do step on the field, we're in the best possible place that we could be. So 
you know, on a practice side of things, some players need to be pushed more to have the resiliency built up to be able to handle the rigors of the season. Other players are, you know, your everyday guys who are constantly playing. They're always in the lineup. They're always dirty. They're the type of player who's always on base. Maybe we need to, to think about what their day looks like a little bit differently than everybody else's to make sure that when they step on the field at seven o'clock at night, that they're ready to go. And so I think it just, it, you know, some of the, the field coordinators and some of the field staffs that I've been able to work with, we've had some great conversations in the past about this. Uh, there's a guy named Chris Swagger, who to this day is one of the, you know, my favorite people to talk about workload management in the professional setting, because he would come to me and say, what, what's your take on today? Here's our plan on the field. How can we adjust? What, what's your thoughts? And we will just have a conversation of, should it be a medium day today? Should we go a little heavier on the field? Should we be a little lighter? How can we adjust? Maybe zoom out even more and look at the entire week. Zoom out and look at the entire month. And then just try to, you know, every single day, try to make small little adjustments to make sure that our team's the freshest they can be. Has nothing to do with sitting our best players. Uh, it just has to do with making sure that we're in the right place at 7 o'clock. That's yeah, that's good stuff. I'm glad you, I'm glad you framed it like that. Where it's actually it's trying to make sure that you can play on a regular basis versus yeah, yeah. I'm especially on the NBA side. I you always hear like Charles Barkley and all these guys just ripping them yeah. for the the workload management stuff, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, and and Tim Gabbett said that it's actually equally more equally dangerous to not practice with a player because now you've taken away their their built-in resiliency and their ability to handle stress. So you have to practice hard because the game is hard. So, you know, if minor league baseball, those guys are on buses and the travel's not great sometimes. And, you know, there's a lot of fatigue there, even though it's not the same as an NBA or football game, there's a lot of fatigue there. And so I want to make sure that my players are able to handle it. And by trying to protect them and doing nothing, I'm actually hurting them in the long run. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons, I mean, I've been looking to do a, a strength conditioning episode, like, like the exact one we're doing. And I, I thought of uh, you because of your experience, not just as a strength conditioning coach, but your experience in professional baseball too, right? And I think mm -hmm. that it's it, it's just it's just hard to really know um, what the yeah. players go through unless you are actually with them on a day by day basis. And obviously, you were for for eight years, and so I think that's you know you you bring a lot of really good context because of that. Um, what, what are your thoughts on assessments? I know we, we, before we started going, I asked you about motor preferences and, mm -hmm. um, I know you've done a little bit of research into that and because that's kind of, it's something that everybody's talking about right now. And just maybe take me through your own assessment process, what you think, because what I'm hearing now is, you know, a lot of, you know, you do some of these fms screens and things like that and then but now people are saying like it's kind of a waste to give people exercise to try to improve the the screens that they fail like take me through your thought process because i know enough to be dangerous but i'm not in the same arena as you that's a uh, this is a good topic right here because <clears throat> when i was in baseball it started to evolve into everybody was doing these battery of tests and it was like one per you know maybe a few teams decided to get into it and then other teams heard about it and said, this is what we're going to get into. I think that with the assessment process, I like to think about what am I trying to get accomplished here? What do I actually want to do? And now that I'm in the private side, I, I'm not tied to a certain company who this is the company we're going to go with this year. Um, we don't have any continuing education in-house where we're all going to follow the same protocol. 
So I've really had a chance to just step away and say, well, I've learned a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of stuff, but what, what do I actually want to keep with me now? And for me, I want to get the best picture of each and every player that I work with that I can. I want to get a really good picture of where they are, because if I want to, you know, if I want to help someone improve, then I need to know where they start first. That's, you know, something very simple there, but I, I need to know. And so my assessment process should be pretty in-depth, the things that I think are important. Uh, right now, when we test, I try to test their athleticism beforehand. So we do a vertical jump. We do a broad jump. We do a 10-second or a 10-yard sprint. We do a grip test. Uh, we, on the baseball side of things, we do bat speed. Uh, we also do uh, sometimes for our, our college and pro guys, we'll do exit velocity uh, just to see where they're at. Or if they have some data from the season, then we'll, we'll just use that if we can. And then our, our other side of things for the baseball on, on the throwing side is, you know, if a guy has a miles per hour that they've been throwing at, or if we have some Rapsodo data, then just trying to take a look at that and see where they are. But again, it's to, it's to figure out what's, where, what are they coming in with? And then if I train them on the strength conditioning side, how does that affect their baseball side? Because I don't want to just say, Hey, these are, you should deadlift and you should squat because it's going to make you a better baseball player. If I don't know if it's making you a better baseball player. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. And that I want to make them as athletic as possible and to be able to practice and be ready to go. But I want to make sure that's not taken away from their main thing. You know, keep the main thing the main thing. And, and so the assessment process for me is I try to get the biggest, broadest scope. On the professional side with FMS and, um, you know, SFMA uh, is another one. That's a big one. I think that... It is a lot of time, especially when you're talking about 150 to 180 guys, and we're doing 150 FMSs in the first couple of days, and it kind of feels like like chaos. There's a lot of stuff going on, and you know the teams do a good job of organizing it. A lot of the directors I worked under, they do a really good job, but it does feel like that, you know, the time that you're spending is like, man, we could probably be doing something else right now. Um, and what we're getting back from it is. You know, if it's a minimal, if it's a minimal amount of information that I'm understanding about the player, is that is that worth it? And you know, for some teams, they choose to do that. On my end, I think if I could go back and I'd be a coordinator at this point in time, I think my assessment would be done in the warm up, and I think my assessment time would be, let's go ahead and get them into good stuff. Let's get them into our program, and then as time goes on, we should be assessing with our eyes. Um, I probably would want to know what their vertical is. I'd probably want to know what their broad jump is. I'd probably want to know, you know, how fast they are in, in a baseball distance. And then outside of that, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd watch them move as they, as they work out and uh, as they warm up and stuff like that. So that way we can kill two birds with one stone. So it, first of all, all that was, that was great stuff. Great insight right there. And that's what I wanted to ask you about, but so your assessment you wouldn't want to just do an assessment where it's like, Hey, it's just a one day thing. It would be over a, a extended time period. Absolutely. Because I want to, and not only do I want to help a player, but I need to check myself too. And I need to check my program and, and I need to make sure that if we're trying, if we value these qualities that we're improving those qualities. So that's the thing about the vertical jump and a 10 yard sprint or whatever distance that someone would want to run, whatever they choose to do. Um, is that we want to make sure, and, and those are things that I can build in my program, but I'd want to make sure that periodically I'm checking back on those things. And that if, a, if we're working on a, a, an FMS and I'm looking at a deep squat, I can have them squat and I can continue to improve that squat. 
versus me sending them up in the FMS. And again, I'm not knocking a specific style of training or I mean, an assessment system. If someone, if an organization chooses to do that, so be it. But if I have a workout, I'm going to have them squat to some degree. And so I'd rather just go ahead and put them into uh, the lowest level of squat and then progress from there. And you said you've looked into a little bit of the motor preferences stuff. Like, can you give us any insight into what you think of that? Is that something that you started hearing about in professional baseball or is that just something you're learning about lately? Um, not necessarily. I have seen them on, uh, on social media posting a few things. I've seen some people talking about it. Um, the, the, from what I understand, and, and I don't want to misquote them or misrepresent them, but uh, that, you know, fitting some athletes into profiles. Um, one thing that I was telling you is that the stuff that I do agree with uh, to the extent that I saw was that, you know, you see a large group of athletes and it's, it is, you see some similarities and you see things where some athletes tolerate some things well, and some, some people don't, and you can start to bucket them in different directions. And I do agree with that, that you, you do see that the only, the only issue that I have um, personally is that if I wanted to when you see kids from different countries and you see kids, different heights, different weights, all this stuff, you just never know what to expect. And it's tough. And, you know, I don't want to bucket, a person where I expect them to be in a certain place and then them surprise me a couple weeks later because it's happened. Um, oh, has you know, it? Do... What, 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 can you give an example of why, um, why that happened? I guess, I guess a good example would be from a different sport. We talk about squatting. A lot of tall guys in baseball will say, well, I can't squat that deep because I'm tall. And I've seen six foot nine basketball players in college being able to squat almost to their calves, you know? And so, you never want to judge a book by its cover in terms of looking at a player or, you know, your initial reading on a person and say that they probably are going to fit into this bucket. And again, I don't, I'm not saying that that's what they do, but um, on my end, I just, as time goes on, I want to gradually get to know the person versus putting all my weight into my initial assessment. Mm, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. No, no, no. Are you doing stuff hitting wise with your players too? Yeah. When COVID uh, stop minor league baseball. One of my my hitting coach at the time, who still to this day I, I think is one of the best people that I've I was ever put in front of that I was lucky to be around. And that happened a lot of times in minor league baseball. But because I was a baseball player first and then got into strength conditioning, I was always fascinated with talking to the. If I had a pitching coach, I wanted to pick his brain. If I had a hitting coach, I was asking them because again, I'm not here to just have kids lift weights and get stronger. I want to make sure that what I'm doing is is in congruency with them. And uh, he mentioned, you know, you can do hitting lessons when you go home or just do some baseball work with some kids. And I think that would help you. And I was like, okay, yeah, or you think so? Because I'm still in the world of don't talk hitting if you're a strength coach, you know, uh, and you can have conversations with them, but you're not leading the the hitting stuff. That's his department. And so um, it took a little bit to get over that for me. I was like, you know what, we can, because in my small area here, there's not going to be a person like me uh, with that education. So, yeah, I, I should probably try to make sure that I can help on that side of things. And as things went along, I started to see that there were so many parallels between lift the, the strength conditioning work and hitting that it was a really, it was, it's a, it's a, it's been a really fun couple years because I've become a better strength coach because of it, honestly. And um, on the hitting side, I got to a point where every kid that was coming into lift, it was almost like a non-negotiable where I said, we need to hit and we need to lift because what we're doing on the strength side is going to apply to your hitting and what we're doing on the hitting side, I can help you on the strength side. What would be some examples of like how you feel like 
that helped you as a strength coach? So on the, on the strength side, what you think you're doing for a player sometimes is, you know, we get, we fall in love with these certain exercises, I think, and we don't have a chance to see them on the field. I, I worked with some strength coaches who did, they like the strength and conditioning side so much that they, they didn't leave the weight room whenever it was time to do baseball stuff. And that happens. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with that, but I want to make sure that I'm watching the player move on the field because that is my assessment. A lot of times, um, if, if I see a player in the box and he has a hard time holding the ground and you see him kind of, you know, losing his balance in his swing with young, younger kids, you see their feet kind of flying all over the place. I know right away what I can do. And it's not going to be from a hitting drill. It's going to be on the strength side. If I get a kid stronger in the weight room in a split squat, for example, is just an easy example. If, if he has a more solid base, then turn him back over to the hitting coach and see if his if his lower half doesn't work a little bit better. Um, if a player is struggles rotating in the cage, and that's something that a hitting coach would com- constantly be cueing them on, I can I can help on the strength side of that. And so just seeing the parallels between the two and how they can feed off of each other, I've been able to do both sides. And so I can really, if I don't do a good job on the strength side with the, with the thing that I'm looking at, that I could definitely tell in the cage as well. Mm. That's awesome. I think more strength coaches should do exactly what you did is start, you know, working with some hitters or if they in professional baseball or really anywhere, I think that's, that's really good advice. What, so one of the the most common flaws you see in hitters is the, especially younger hitters, probably because they lack some functional strength is, is flying open early, partly, probably because of the approach to, and they're trying to do too much up there. I'd say that's a part of it, but what would be like an exercise or is there a, a couple different exercises that you find yourself routinely doing with hitters. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and even, even honestly, all the way up, there's, I don't think there's a, there's a limit in terms of the age. It just, it's a matter of when the player hears it, being able to stay in a certain direction. I know uh, you had Andy Bar- Barquette on um, a few, a few podcasts ago, and I loved listening to that one. And one of the players he had worked with is, is working with me now. And we talk about direction a lot. And I think that younger players seem to lack direction. And like you said, they, they're flying open early. So part of that is holding the ground maybe or whatever term someone wants to use, but also their posture. Their posture is a big one. Um, a friend of mine who uh, I got a chance to work with, we've had some hitting conversations and he was mentioning one of, one, uh, one of his organizational philosophies that he works with is, is posture. And so being able to teach someone a proper hip hinge has really – given me a ton back on the hitting side because when a person goes to turn if they're able to hold their posture over the plate and then rotate it seems like they're able to stay through a pitch longer and they're able to maintain the direction better so if if I'm watching a kid and he's having the same problem that you talked about right away I go to okay he probably doesn't know how to hold a hinge very well and he probably isn't strong enough in his lower half to just be able to hold the ground as he rotates and so uh, we, I mentioned the split squat earlier, any form of single leg squatting will help uh, split squat is the one I go to a reverse lunge. And then the other side of things would be teaching a hinge all the way through, you know, the lowest level where, where you're working with body weight all the way up to teaching an RDL. Uh, you know, you can talk about as far as a deadlift, depending on what type of person's in front of you, but typically kids benefit from learning how to do an RDL properly. Is that something that takes that you've seen take weeks, months, days to fix? Like, is there or or that session? 
Yeah, it could be that session. And it, it really just depends on um, where the kid comes in at. If you're talking about a high school player that has more uh, body awareness and more spatial awareness, then, you know, they can pick it up a little bit quicker. But it really just depends on how much the player's bought in and how, how if, if a player understands that's going to help them in the cage, then they're going to they're going to buy into it a little bit more. Um, if it's an exercise in the gym side, but they really love baseball and they don't know why they're doing the gym side right now, then, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer. But once once you see a player get it, then they're like, OK, this is something I need to put some time into. Corey, one, one of my pet peeves is hearing kids talk about how they go into the weight room or they, you know, they lifted for two hours today or something like that. I, for me, it's like, you know, when I get in there, I, I just, I don't want to be in there any longer than an hour. How long should a, a session lifting be? Like, is there a time where it's like after so-and-so time, like, come on, like, there's no reason you still need to be in there. Yeah. Two hours, long time, two hours, long time. Um, if it, it, it depends how much, um, how much you're encompassing in the workout. Like, you know, some of the older guys that are veteran players, they're going to take more of their time to warm up. They're going to do, you know, they're going to spend 20 to 25 minutes on their hip mobility, their ankle mobility. 20 to 25 minutes. Yeah. I mean, and and to be honest with you, I think that it's probably is my hot take on is that it's probably too much. We do a lot of foam rolling and, and, um, and activation work instead of, you know, kind of just getting into it. And, And I'm not suggesting that, it's it's uh, unnecessary for specific people, but I think that a lot of, there's a lot of copy and paste going on where a player will see other people doing it and say, well, then that's what I need to do too. Um, I think the efficiency needs – if somebody's working out for two hours, I would say that they probably need to be more efficient with their time. But, you know, if they're doing mobility work, if they're doing speed and, uh, and agility work beforehand, if they're doing a full lift in the off season and then they're doing some uh, maybe some flexibility or conditioning at the end, then yeah, I could probably take an hour and a half. Um, But that's probably the longest lift that I will have. And that will be in the off season for players in season. I want them to maintain the strength that they built up. I want them to continue on a good plan, keep their intensity up, maybe drop the volume. Uh, But for the most part, we're in and out in 45 minutes to an hour. So how many times a week would you say pro guys lift in season? Two times? In, in season, it's twice. Um, you have the option for a player who uh, maybe is going to be your you know, second or third catcher or one of your backup players that is going to play every three or four days. We'll probably get them a third lift in. And for those listening to this who, again, don't have your background or experience, is it going to be lighter weight, more reps? Because that's what I've always heard in season. Is it, Would that be still correct? No, um, no, I wouldn't okay. say, you know, for me, this is actually a, a good topic to to bring up because we're talking about players getting into season now and you have players that went from the off season and they worked really hard and they feel pretty strong and they're coming in maybe with a good plan. And then they, they completely drop the intensity, meaning the weight on the bar or the weight on the dumbbell or whatever it is. And they go from higher reps. The issue with that is now you're going to deteriorate in terms of your strength. And in a strength and power based sport, that is your main bread and butter. And that's what you need. And so all the work that you did, it really only takes about three or four weeks to detrain to where you're kind of working back to your original baseline. And so um, what I've had to educate players on in season is that, hey, we can actually still lift pretty heavy, pretty heavy. But what we need to do is drop the volume because the volume, the, 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 the amount of reps is actually what's going to cause the soreness. 
And if a player is able to do three sets of 10, it tells me that he's not lifting at a high enough intensity to maintain the stuff that he came in with. Um, so, you know, my challenge to players is, hey, I'm not going to make you sore. I'm not, you know, if that's what we're worried about and that's the, the negative connotation, there's a little bit of soreness here and there, so be it. But that's not the pro- that's not what we're, we're after. We're here to try to make, make sure that you stay strong and powerful throughout the entire season. How, so how many reps would you say? You said three sets of 10 is going to be, if they're doing that, then they're, they're not lifting heavy enough. Like what would yeah, be I mean, uh, to, today with a group that I had going into season, we did four sets of three on a power-based exercise. Uh, we did three sets of five on another exercise. And that's in season, that's about as high as I go is three sets of five. It, again, if I have a player who isn't getting a lot of field work, or, or I'm sorry, he's not playing a lot of games, not getting a lot of innings, then I might go, you know, four sets of five. But, you know, my my issue with the three sets of 10 is there's a good chance that if you can do 10 reps, that the amount of weight that you were lifting at the time wasn't wasn't a ton. And now we're we're getting into some other qualities outside of strength and power. So, you know, in terms of the textbook, uh, strength and power are going to be on your lower, like your your three rep range, your four to five rep range, somewhere in there. How many different exercises would you say so like today? You said four, you know, four sets of three, three sets of five. How many different exercises w- like would you do? Uh, well, the the most I've ever gone up to uh, with one organization was eight exercises in a day. Uh, but that was a two set type of deal. And, you know, we're talking about two exercises or core exercises. So it's about four primary movements and then a few auxiliary or like secondary exercises that are just support exercises. You know, if somebody's going to do a bicep curl, that's not super taxing to the body. Those aren't major muscle groups. Some players just, they, they just feel better when they hit a couple sets of bicep curls or, you know, what, whatever that ending is, I kind of give the players the freedom, the five to 10 minutes to, to get a few sets of things that they like as well. So there's that give and take and art of coaching. Gotcha. What's your take on uh, improving a grip strength? Is that something that, again, you think players should be focusing a little bit more on, a little bit less on? What's your take on that? I think grip strength is 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 very important, and there's some supporting research that it's a really good measure of uh, total body strength in players. I do think that with players being one arm dominant in baseball, that you're going to see a huge discrepancy between. Sometimes you see a large gap between the two. Um, but but I have found that, you know, some of our stronger players in the weight room, some of our stronger, more powerful players are also uh, really strong on the gripper. Now, the caveat to that, I've also seen players with very low grip strength throw very, very hard. The issue there is that do I think that they're going to be able to sustain that for long periods of time without good grip strength? That's the question. Somebody can throw 95 plus with low grip strength, but Will they be able to stay healthy for an entire career at a high level? I I don't think so. And what so, about on the hitting side? Have you seen a hitter with um, a lot of power and not their grip strength isn't very high? Yes, yes, for sure. And really? and that's the thing. I, I love I love working with so many different populations of people from the pro side all the way down because you always think that if something's going to go a certain way, and then you find the one person that proves it wrong, and then those are the things that kind of make me think like, whoa, that kind of changes my whole perspective on this but uh that means to me that you know that player probably makes it up from somewhere else um they have enough grip strength and you know it might be lower than what i initially expected that players need to have 
but that maybe they just make up for it somewhere else. They're just incredibly good with their hip rotation or, you know, they're incredibly good at being able to segment their spine and, you know, hold their posture, whatever it is. But um, typically you'll find it in other places pretty much. One of the questions that I'll get from, from some people is, you know, they'll look at, you know, someone like Mookie Betts and then they'll look get, have another comparison of another player who's, you know, huge over 220, 230 pounds mm-hmm. and, and Mookie Betts hits the ball harder than them. Like why, why is it that some who, um, you know, who maybe aren't very big physically can still just generate that type of power? I know it's force and mass times acceleration, but just curious if you had your own own take on it. Yeah, I mean, people do it different ways. That's the crazy. That's that's the beautiful thing of baseball, and and why hitting is so much fun to be a part of and watch and and learn about, is that you know everyone's trying to accomplish the same exact thing, but there's so many different ways to do it. And I think that when you're talking about those two different people, I'm thinking about like a Mark McGuire and a and a Mookie Betts. You know, yeah. like they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, I think that you know, with Mookie seems like such an elastic person. Cause I, I've even seen videos of him playing other sports and where he's doing incredible stuff on the basketball side or the football side. And I think the way that he generates it is going to be more from the elasticity and fascia side versus like a Mark McGuire, that would probably be just pure muscular strength and being able to create that at the end of the day, we're all trying to create the same thing, but the way that the person accomplishes the goal is going to be just different. Um, you know, Mark McGuire doesn't need to jump 35 inches off the ground and have that unbelievably, you know, crazy explosiveness, but he's more like a Mack truck and Mookie Betts seems more like a sports car. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah, for sure. What's your take on plyometrics for younger, younger kids? I think, you know, when you're talking about a younger kid, they need to create a good foundation and they need to be as athletic as they can be and build that good base first before they even think about being, you know, higher level baseball player and plyometrics is a really good way of starting that process. And that can be as simple as teaching kids how to land first um, to accept force, you know, instead of, you know, having them do a million jumps. Part of plyometrics is being able to teach a kid how to jump because you're, you're starting that initial coaching progression. Um, I think plyometrics are, are really great for kids who don't have the first step explosiveness or don't have that twitchiness about them. Um, but again, like my own, my only thing with that is, is that I think people think plyometrics is box jumps. They see box jumps and that's kind of, you know, it's like, it's gotta be jumping, but there's a, there's a, a set progression that you kind of have to follow first. And by teaching a kid to jump at a younger age, that is probably exactly what they need. Good stuff. Again, glad, glad, glad I have you. Um, as someone I can ask, cause I see stuff online. It's like up plyometrics is, is a waste. It's not a waste. So I'm glad we can cut through the, the BS and um, you know, you give us that answer, but what about what, what's something else that you feel that, that people or players maybe aren't doing coaches aren't doing that they need to be doing on the, the strength side. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, having someone here from the pro side that's a minor league player and then having someone that's a really young kid here um i'm able to see some of the things that carry over to everybody across the board so it's not just like where you like oh well pro players do this and and young players do this separate i think that understanding how to move better and i don't know if that's just 
kind of a simple answer or not, but understanding how to move better and spend more time and, and, you know, more of your strength program, understanding movement quality. I think that instead of focusing on loading up the bar, which again, I'm a, I'm a fan of getting people stronger, but not at the expense of not moving in a better, more efficient way. Because at the end of the day, where we estimate strength, the, the strength necessary to be good at baseball gets disproven by people like Ronald Acuna, like you said, right? So I think if we spend more time on the movement efficacy side and understanding how to squat better and understanding how to hinge better, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how much weight's on his bar, you know? So I think my own self teaching younger players how to move better first has paid off for me by the time they're 13 to 15 years old. And, and now when we get into the loading side, I've already done the groundwork to get to, get to that point. Um, sometimes if you have a pro player who's, you know, he has all the intangibles on his blast data or his other hitting data, he looks really good, but there's just something missing. Typically I find that that's a movement problem. And whenever they, you know, start to understand and improve their motor control, now all of a sudden you've unlocked the thing that you already thought about them before, and now they're able to do it at a high level more consistently. So I think movement, improving your movement patterns and improving the way that you move is probably a, a high up on the list for me. Last thing I wanted to ask you about is recovery. Hear a lot mm -hmm. about, you know, pre-work and swing prep and things like that and all that stuff. But what about recovery? I mean, you hear, you know, I'm sure I know you see this all the time, but how, you know, ice baths or cold tubs are a huge thing, not yeah. just among athletes, but everybody. I mean, it's just taken over saunas, yep. all that stuff. Every, yeah. Everybody's doing it. And so, Everywhere, yeah. right. But from like a, a recovery standpoint for these athletes, like, is there something they should be doing? Should they be in static stretching after games to help them recover for the next day? Is it solely going to be dependent again on the player? Like, do you have your own take on it? Maybe your own opinion on, on what you think players should be doing? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think movement is medicine. And um, there's a, a few people that I've always followed on social media that I've learned from. Kelly Starrett is one of the best uh, people that, you know, indirectly from his content and stuff, I've learned a lot from. I've worked with some really good uh, physical therapists and other people on the medical side. And, and the, the thing that we can all agree on is that getting your body moving seems to help the most. Um, I think when we talk about recovery, some, some people think and, and have that feeling that, uh, you know, resting and, and doing nothing is recovering. And it's actually going to be more active than people understand. Um, you know, on the pro side of things, whenever we'd have long travel days, I would always suggest to players that I know you don't want to get out of bed, um, try to get as much sleep as we can, but we got to get you out and we got to get you moving. So even if you're not going to lift today, Let's go to the gym and just the act of going to the gym will start your day. It will force you to kind of get your breakfast. It will, you know, if we're, if we're on the bike for 25 minutes and we get our blood flowing, that could be a form of recovery. Um, as far as the ice baths go, as far as hot and cold tubs, I, they've been around for so long and some veteran players would swear by it that I had to look more into it and say, man, there's gotta be, it's, it's gotta be important and it's gotta be helpful. And yeah, I, I do think that, to the level that people are talking about it, probably the pendulum swing a little too far into it. But um, as far as, you know, does it have benefits and should players be doing it? Um, my general take is that they should be doing some form of active recovery for 20 to 30 minutes, you know, after really high bouts of exercise. 
something that gets your, you know, breathing is actually one of the best things that you possibly can do. Um, breathing is one of my favorite things to recommend to people. Sometimes kids think that I have two heads when I'm talking to them when I talk about breathing. Um, but it, it, it is a really, really uh, important thing to do. I think it helps shift your nervous system over to the parasympathetic side, the recovery side, you know, your fight or flight side, where players who have a, are really high strung and run on adrenaline all the time, they have a really hard time shifting over to the recovery side. And so uh, one of the suggestions I had for a pitcher that who was just always a high strung guy, he would get done with his starts and he would tell me, I don't know if I can lift tomorrow because I, I always stay up until two or three in the morning after my starts, just because I have a really hard time calming down. So one of the things I did is I just I asked him to try it because I thought in theory it should help. But after your start, go into a dark room, uh, chill for a little bit. These are the breathing exercises that I want you to do. Um, these are the things that I think will help calm you down and kind of shift you over to recovery mode. And he did say that he slept better afterwards. So I, that, that was a, a light bulb went off for me. And I said, okay, cool. There's something to this. Um, I, again, like just getting out on a bike for 20, 30 minutes, um, getting your blood flowing. That's a form of recovery. Stretching is a form of recovering. As long as you're doing something, I think that's better than doing nothing at all. Gotcha. Well, Corey, I appreciate you coming on today, man. Again, I know, you know, for those listening, Corey is the, the founder of, of Peak Sports Performance in Sebring, Florida. Did I get that right? Yeah, so Sebring, where, where is that? Yeah, because if I, I hear that, I, you know, I'm not a, from Florida. Where exactly is that near in Florida? It's pretty much in the center of everything. Um, you have Orlando north of us, Tampa's to the side of us, West Palm's to the side of us, and then Miami's a few hours uh, below us. So we're kind of in the middle of the whole state. Uh, there's a lot of nothing around us, but we're close to everything. So, uh, we're in Highlands County, Florida, Sebring, Florida, kind of in the middle of the whole state. Where should someone go if they, they want more information or want to follow you or just want to get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I, I post, uh, information on my social media accounts, either on Twitter or, or X or, uh, Instagram, and that's going to be peak sports perform. And then uh, C-R-I-T-T-F-I-T-7 uh, is the, my account on X. They can ask me any questions on there. Um, and then just email-wise, I have speedstrength7 at gmail.com. If anybody has any questions about uh, stuff that we talked about today or just general questions, you know, I'm, I'm happy to answer that and help out. Awesome. Well, Corey, I appreciate you coming on, man. It was good. You know, we got to meet down at Connecting the Dots in, um, in Tampa, Florida, and um again first person i thought of was you when i was looking into the new year 2024 and i want to do a strength episode and again with your experience and background in baseball and strength and sports science everything hitting just thought you were perfect and you definitely killed it today so not surprised that you did so well and um again if there's anything you need from from me going forward feels feel free to reach out yeah, no, I, I'm so glad I'm able to get on here. And I, like I said, I've I've listened to your podcast uh, for quite a while. Uh, it's like my workout uh, thing to listen to. So that's what I do typically during workouts is try to, you know, learn from people like you and, and some of your guests that you've had on. So really uh, happy to be able to be a part of this. And thanks for asking.